Hello, <laughs> everybody. You scared me. Um, no, not you guys, but you scared you, Father Peter, scared me. This is the word on the hill, and I am Scott Powell. No, you're not. They're not going to be fooled. We don't sound that similar. We really sound very similar. Do we? I actually don't know if we do or not. I don't know if we do or not. Uh, yeah, we don't sound very similar. Actually, we're pretty different. I have a lot of vocal intonations that are not quite acquired by you yet. No, I am Scott Powell, though. You are Father Peter Musset. This is The One on the Hill. We are the Lanky Guys, and you are listening to us. Okay, and, continue now. And this is, uh, we're, we're approaching the ascension of the Lord today. We are approaching, well, yeah. Well, depending on when you guys are listening to it, we are approaching, we're, we're approaching it with uh, trembling feet. Okay. Yes. Oh, you know. In Harry Potter, one of their magical spells, all their magical spells are just saying Latin words. <laughs> are they really? Yeah, that's all they really are. So Ascendio like most... or Ascendio is like something just like shoots up into the sky. So Ascendio. Is that one of the things in Harry Potter? It is. I feel like you always make Harry Potter references on this podcast that I don't get. That's because uh, you don't get them. No, I don't because... Well, no, I did see... I So I once saw... I don't know, like the twelfth. How many Harry Potters are there? There's like yeah, fifteen. Yeah, something like that. I saw a further further in one. We were going with some friends, and we have this really nerdy Harry Potter friend who literally made a PowerPoint presentation. No. To fill us in on everything that we no, would need he, to know. No, she. He, yes, she, she did. Put a PowerPoint. It was surprisingly together? entertaining and <laughs> thorough. It was like an hour long. It was a lot. <laughs> Might as well just watch the movie. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, that like, was intense. I'm I'm super impressed by that. Well. I, you know, whenever I uh, come to the Ascension, I have just such an essential, um, tri- essential, uh, essential, no essential. Oh, that's really funny. Uh, no, it wasn't. Question: How Kay. fast? At, like a rocket. At what rate did Jesus ascend? Was it like a quadcopter? Was it like <laughs> was a rocket? It? I don't know. Do you that's know what a good qu- question. A quadcopter is no, dude. This is the age of the drone, man. Welcome to the age of the drone. It is the thank you for having me. It, it's a helicopter that has uh, four propellers on it, and that's really the thing. Oh, so, quad! That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So um, it is also the seventh Sunday of Easter. It's some yes. diocese. Yeah, you, yeah. You're yeah, yeah. not going to be celebrating the Ascension. Um, the bishops uh, uh, allowed it to be moved so that uh, we could um, not be in mortal sin by missing the feast, the the Ascension. So. I don't. I don't really know. I, that's the only explanation I can come up with. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, which is there? It's the good and the care of souls. Okay, good. So, because typically the ascension is nine days before Pentecost. Pentecost. Bing, Does that bing, make bing, sense? Bing, Shouldn't bing. it be ten days before? This is where we get the idea of a novena. Well, I'll show you why I think that in a second. Okay, let's talk about the readings. Well, let's talk about the. The re- actual readings. Uh, yeah, well, so there's a line in the readings that says he appeared to them for 40 days. But then Pentecost is 50 days. Right, so that's 10 days later. You see what I'm saying? Do you see my confusion here? Dude, the whole calculation of days in the scriptures, I During don't... During 40 days. I, I'm really confused. I'm a little confused. That's all right. Well, We're good. So our first reading today is all the letter one. The, it's a number, but yes. <laughs> You're very sharp. Thank you. You, I, you were on your phone, so I was trying to deceive you. Oh, uh, I'm not on my phone. You're not on your phone. Renato. <laughs> Our first reading is Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. 1, 1, 1, 1. 1, 1, 1, 1. That's okay. like dialing a cab or something. 1, 1, Isn't 1, all 1, sevens? 1, 1, 1, 1. Or threes. You can threes. also do threes okay. and sevens and stuff. 
Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 47, verses 2 through 3, 6 through 7, 8 through 9. And our response itself is coming from verse 6. Now, the second reading this week has a few options. Clap your hands, all you peoples. I'm writing new music with the psalm. And okay, um, second reading, yes. Second yes, reading, yes, yes, we're yes, going to yes. be going off of the first option. There's three options from Ephesians. Yeah. And um, uh, the first option is 1, 17 to 23, which is what we're going to be doing. Otherwise, it's Ephesians 4, 1 through 13, or of selection therein. So yeah. um, so just follow our lead. Did you already say what we're doing? Keep us, uh, look to me for the key changes, and let's go. Hold on to your horse. Oh, 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 um, um, back to the future. Yeah, good. Morning, we fly. Yes. Yes. Dude. Oh, so happy. Okay. Um, our gospel reading is coming. Oh, wait. Yes. Our gospel reading is coming from Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20. That's ominous. I know. I That's, I don't, that's because it's ominous. Star Wars season. Let's start uh, in, in Acts, man. Okay. Okay. We've Acts. been sharpening. This is the front edge of Acts. It's the front end. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's nothing I can add to that. <laughs> <laughs> you did it all yourself. Okay, so this is the first um, part of Acts of the Apostles. So it begins. So, um, Theophilus first thing is we the lover of know, God. <laughs> that is. Well, okay, okay, okay. Let's back up a second. Back, back it, it up. up. Back, back it, it up. up. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Yeah, good jerk. Acts. First thing you need to know, and which you probably already know, people, not you. I know you know this. Acts is the second volume of a two-volume set written by the Apostle Luke. Uh, the writer Luke. <laughs> the Apostle he's not an Luke. Apostle, was no, he? he's not an Apostle. Um, the, the evangelist Luke. Got the it. The first half is what? The Gospel yeah, of Yeah, the Gospel Luke. of Luke. So this is part two, and they, they really are best served if they're read together because it is one continuous narrative. I actually love the beginning of it. So first of all, it's addressed to the same person he addressed the Gospel to, which is Theophilus. There's a lot of different theories on who Theophilus is. Or was. Was. Uh, the name Theo, Theo meaning God, and, and um, Philos, Philos, meaning love. lover. So uh, God lover is, is what that name means. Um, lots of debate about who that is. There's a common belief that Theophilus might have been some sort of Roman government official to whom Luke is trying to make a, a case for the gospel message. So Luke is the only non-Jewish writer of a New Testament book. So he's a Gentile. He's non-Jew. He was a physician, the Gentile physician. Um, so, you know, some people have said, oh, maybe this is some some um, official that he's trying to compel with the gospel. If you read Luke and Acts, they're very, Luke, the gospel especially, they're very heavy on temple and priesthood images, yes. which is really interesting. Because especially if you're a Roman government official, you're not going to understand at least half of what Luke is saying in this book because it's all pretty technical. Doesn't Luke, doesn't he spend a bunch of time translating specific words as well too? He does. He does do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, he spends some of the time doing that. But he's a Gentile, so that makes sense. He's working through this. Mark does it more. Mark right? does it a lot more. Yeah, Mark yeah. does it much more. But there's a theory floating out there. There We have some records, and there was apparently a high priest in Jerusalem around this time whose name was Theophilus. So there is a theory, and I think it's a compelling one, that Luke is not writing to some Roman government official no. with the gospel. He's actually writing to the high priest. As so, one of the, We've said this in previous weeks. The whole underlying theme of the gospel of Luke is these, um, these ironic reversals. Remember, so even Mary's Magnificat, you will cast down the low, you will lift up the lowly, cast down the mighty from their thrones. You know, everything is the opposite. 
yes. of kind of what you expect. It's, it's kind of like crisscross from the 90s. Crisscross will make you jump, jump. Daddy Mac will make you jump, jump. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I lost my train of thought. Thanks a lot, Father <laughs> Don't so, try to compare so us to another bad little fat. I'm the Mac and I'm back and I'm something that you never had. Um, so this is the thing is it's oh, a lot yeah. about a lot about reversals so, writing to the high priest. But imagine imagine if the high priest is having the gospel preached to him by a non-Jewish Gentile convert. I mean, you don't get any more ironic reversal than, than that oh, sort of thing. Boom. Yeah. So we don't know exactly who Theophilus is. Think of that. I like that theory because it actually makes a lot of things in the gospel then make sense. Um, so I just throw that out there for your for your. Um, consideration because i think it's a compelling i mean at the end of the day we don't know who theophilus is we have to guess maybe it's a government official maybe it's a high priest maybe he represents those who love god you know the god lover in generic it's, it's just sense. like we a generic know. sense we write into the world of loving of god yeah, yeah but we don't know so but now you have my uh, my theory and what i think it is anyway i think so, your two cents are worth about that so thanks, thank dude. you you're the best yeah so in the first book in other words the gospel i dealt with all that jesus did and taught oh I don't like this translation because in other translations there's a there's a word missing here. Began to yeah. do and teach. So what it said oh man, that bums me out that the NAB translated it this way. But what it actually says is in the first book I I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Echato, so if yeah. the first book, if the Gospel of Luke was all about what Jesus began to do and teach, then what would we presume that the second volume is all about? After he was gone. What he continues to do and teach. Right? Oh. I think that's actually one of the themes that comes out of the book of Acts. So if oh. the gospel is about what Jesus began to do and teach. Oh, yeah. Up until. Yeah. yeah. And now this is going to be. So how does Jesus act and teach in Acts of the Apostles? After he ascended. How? But how does he act in this book? It, through his church. Through his church. And I think that's one of the primary. So you remember this is where, and we talked about this last week or two weeks ago. Um, Saul's conversion on the road. Remember, on the road to Damascus, he's thrown to the ground, and Jesus appears to him and says, what? Do you remember? Uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting? Me. Me. And in Paul's mind, who is he persecuting? Him. In Paul's mind, Oh, who the church, he? the church. Yeah. He's yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. I'm persecuting these guys. So for Jesus, he's saying, no, I am embodied in them. So really, the, the Acts of the Apostles is about Jesus's life and works through the church in a very explicit way, right? Which is just kind of, a, again, that's a cool way to read it. And you can, I did a little chart for a class I taught years ago that shows you can do side-by-side comparisons and all the things that, or a lot of the things that Luke shows Jesus doing in the gospel, the apostles do in Acts, like the very same things. You can see this overlay of miracles that they both perform. So is he's it? really trying to show you this is the church living out Jesus's. It, is like, the is the fig tree in Luke? I can't remember. Well, it is in Mark. I forget if it's in Luke. It's in Cause, Mark because because like in Luke, definitely I, in Mark. I think that I, in Luke there's an axe sitting oh at the my base gosh, of are the you kidding tree. Me? Well, you know who is in Acts is uh, Zacchaeus up in his little tree. Okay, there so you, you go. Can cut an axe down. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. You saw what? This is the thing. Come on, yeah, I'm getting do. it in at, at any price, even the compromising do. of the integrity, quite, quite drastically. <laughs> <laughs> All right, until the day was after he was given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Here's the thing that's kind of cool about the beginning of Acts. Um, Acts doesn't pick up exactly where the Gospel of Luke left off. It kind of, it kind of, it, so it, it almost, you remember, I don't know if they do this anymore, but remember when we were growing up back in the olden days? I remember them olden days. And at the beginning of all of our favorite TV shows, there was always a, last week on Growing Pains. 
Yeah, right? and it would give you the the recap. Yeah, they they do that with Lost. Do they? St- Lost was like ten years ago. They do that with Daredevil on Netflix. <laughs> okay, I don't it was know released like a month, like half a month. Okay, ago. fair enough. So good, you've caught us up. That's kind of what Axe is doing. So he's like, last time on Jesus and Friends, th- this happened. <laughs> but he gives you a little bit more information that he gave you in Luke in the Gospel. So he appears to these about. So in in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he appears to the apostles, and he tells them to go hang out in Jerusalem until he gives them further instruction. But here you get a little bit more. You get the content of their conversation during the 40 days that Jesus appears to them, which I think is kind of cool. So he presented himself alive to his church after many proofs he had suffered. He appeared to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I think that's cool because the most commonly repeated term, the most repeated term in all the Gospels is the term the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're interchangeable. Basilea tu theu. It's exactly right. So Jesus' topic of conversation is the same thing as it was back in the Gospels. I am building a kingdom. And what's cool about Acts of the Apostles, you see at the beginning, the apostles still don't get it. So he's talking about the kingdom of God. <laughs> While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is about which you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which is kind of cool. Um, I like I like coming real soon. Yeah, yeah, which is where we get the origin of the novena. That's absolutely right. The, apparently, <laughs> over nine days instead of ten. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I is guess that, that I, don't know. I mean, it hits the it's, it hits the vigil. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. So then the tenth day would begin right as you're finishing the ninth day. Got it. So it's the nine and the ten. This is the thing that that I think ha- it happens so strangely in the church, is that uh, is that our, like the seventh day and the eighth day are really the first day yeah, and yeah, the yeah. seventh day. Like like it's like I we don't even know anymore. I don't even know what day it is, man. I don't know because you is. know what a thousand days are like a day to me, and a day is like a thousand years. <laughs> so it's all good anyway. Well played. <laughs> well played. <laughs> so it says they're all gathered together and they asked him, Lord, are you the, at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I love this line because, again, throughout the gospel, Jesus is talking about the kingdom all over the place. And they're constantly like, okay, is now the time? Now are we going to have a kingdom? Are we going to have the thrones now? No, when are the chariots coming? When are we going to get the thrones? When are we going to get the gold? When is it going to look like a kingdom and not just a bunch of out-of-work people sleeping on people's couches and wandering around and itinerant stuff? Yeah. And so now Jesus has died on the cross. He has risen from the dead. And they're like, okay, so now? <laughs> is it going to be <laughs> finally? Are we doing it now? And Jesus gives them this answer. He says, for it is not it is not for you to know the times of the season that the Father has established by his own authority. In other words, it's none of your business. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess we'll wait some more risen Jesus. I mean, that had to be really frustrating for them. Oh, yeah. Because they're like, okay, you've risen from the dead now. Is there much more to do before the kingdom shows up? It's kind of like- they still don't get it. It's kind of like, ta-da! And right. like, you're like, sweet. Yeah, <laughs> right. we're, we're looking for catharsis. We're looking for- Everything yeah. to be answered. And then Jesus is like, I'm out of here. And and like, you're, oh. You're like, come oh, on, okay. man. <laughs> you're leaving again? I mean, that had to be, because they don't have the Holy Spirit, which is why when Pentecost comes, they're actually huddled in the upper room in fear because they still don't get it. Yeah. Seeing, merely seeing, I wonder if there's something here for us to use. Merely seeing Jesus, even risen from the dead, is actually not enough to open their eyes. They saw him, but they oh. still haven't had their hearts and their minds enlivened by the Holy Spirit. They have seen him and yes. they believe they really do, but it doesn't change their lives until the Holy Spirit empowers them and gives them the ability to do what they're actually called to do, Dude. which is fascinating, isn't it? 
yeah, it it follows a real typical t- pattern of the new evangelization of people who are fully initiated, who have encountered the risen Lord truly, oh. and and even actually believe, but yet maybe are not actually in a full encounter yet. That's where I'm going with the gospel. What up, dog? Bring it on. And actually, I think that's a good way a segue into the psalm, sort of. But but so Jesus gives them their itinerary which is the table of contents for the book of Luke. Okay, you're going to go out, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. It's these concurrent circles, right, of, of mission territory. Yeah. And when he said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. That's the, the engines in Jesus' shoes. <laughs> and suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. And they're like, hey, why are you looking up there? Dude. <laughs> why I, are you looking at this guy? I've told you, I've told you, like, I think that this is the same two, man. Oh, yes. I think you're right. I think, I think that, you're totally right. I think that this is the same two that were stationed outside the Garden of Eden. It makes sense. I they're think still it was there. The, the same two who were stationed uh at the tomb of Jesus. And I think it's the same two who were stationed at the uh which I don't know. I mean, like, are they archangels? They're not named, so um, who who knows? It's probably just two two couple of uh, brothers, the middle management angels, middle management angels. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. They had they no, had some they bells had, in that's their a pretty hands. big. They had some bells in their hands. Yeah, that's some big stuff. But they're not named. No, they're just they're some dudes in white. I like that they call them men. You know, like because Raphael, everybody mistakes angels for men. I think that that's why that that's that how premise, the Old Testament speaks of them as well, though. Yeah, the the premise of the show, touched by an angel, was awesome, <laughs> precisely because of this. Precisely. Oh man, dude! Um, I feel like I'm making a lot of pop culture references all of a sudden. Wasn't that the same woman who was Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman? Yeah. Do you know that she was one of the James Bond girls? No. I just saw something on the interwebs about that. Anyway, dude, times are hard. Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, how do I say this? We tend. To, well, I don't know if it's we, but I. I think. I think it's a safe we. <laughs> we tend to think of the ascension as kind of an afterthought. Like Jesus does I, all the well, you don't. I know you don't, so that's why I hesitated with that. But I think a lot for a lot of us, mm. it's like okay, the big stuff of like palms, uh, you know, the passion, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection, Pentecost, then, even Pentecost is a huge deal, and kind of smacked in the middle, wedged in there. Oh yeah, he kind of ascends and he floats off into heaven, Whew. but it, it, it's not seen oftentimes as the. It's just a side note. It's an afterthought. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. It's almost seen as an afterthought. And I think that's so, what- Some even consider it afterburn. <laughs> that's oh, just depending on how, how he ascended. Unreal. Yeah. But I think that's actually what the psalm has to tell us. So Psalm 47, I think, is is relates- Where's my books? Psalm 47 relates hugely, I think, to- the idea of the ascension. So it says, God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets for the Lord. So here's the thing. A blare of trumpets for the Lord. The, the way the psalm is sung is super awesome. <laughs> I know, but that's not the tune. I That's okay. No, I, it is. I can't think of the tune. That didn't help me. <laughs> um, all you people, slap your hands, shout for joy, cries, gladness. Anyway, uh, in the Old Testament, the prophecies all said that, okay, the Lord is going to come back. He's going to come from the east, right? He's going to come from the wilderness. There's going to be a messenger preparing his way. He's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to defeat his enemies, right? All of which he does in the Gospels. And then all the prophets continually say, and then he will mount his throne, right? Often, Well, in, in some sense, we can see the, the cross as his throne that he mounts, which he does. He's wearing a crown. He is mounted high up. But 
that mounting on the cross is actually the means of defeating the enemies. He's defeating death. That's actually the battlefield more than it is the throne. Yes. It is in a certain sense the throne. Yes. But it's the battle, which means that only after this is all accomplished does he then fulfill what all the prophets said, which is to mount his throne, which is a significant part of the story because the king is only really seen as king once he mounts and ascends his throne. And he's crowned once and for all. That's sort of what he's doing here. God mounts his throne to shouts of joy, a blare of trumpets for the Lord. There's a, I was reading this this little commentary on the Psalms by Patrick Henry Reardon. We've talked about it before. Reardon. <laughs> Reardon. But he makes this kind of interesting comparison in... Um, I, I never thought of it this way. He talks about the, the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Don't do it. I, I, I've Don't been drinking it. really great coffee recently. How come? How did you get it? Moses. Oh, it. Anyway, it doesn't. That didn't go. Um, but he, so Hebrews has this, uh, kind of goes through this logic of why Jesus is a better high priest than any of the priests of the old Testament, right? Than any of the Levitical priests living. He's, he's superior. Why? Well, because he's a priest and he's a king because he's, well, he's God and man. He is the perfect intermediary because he understands our needs better than any human being. Right. And there's this, um, I think it's in chat. It's in Hebrews. I want to say it's. Eight. I don't remember. Um, but anyway, there's this passage in Hebrews that talks about, oh, it's in chapter nine, that talks about how Jesus once and for all entered into the Holy of Holies, the throne room, uh, uh, the, the temple, the more perfect tabernacle, the one made without human hands. Mm. And he offers as high priests, not a calf or a goat or something like this, but his own body. And you could be reading Hebrews, and if you didn't understand the theology behind it, you're like, well, wait a second. When did Jesus go into the Holy of Holies in the temple? Because you're like, well, if you read the Gospels, he never goes into the temple. He goes in the temple vicinity. He's in the courts. He never goes into the Holy of Holies. But this is kind of where things get interesting. Because back in um, the book of Exodus, remember when Moses gets the instructions for building the temple, the tabernacle? Yes, of course. The way that he's given those instructions, do you remember this? He's actually taken kind of in a vision. Into the throne room. Well, sort of. But he's shown, he's like, hey, look, here's this vision in heaven of the heavenly tabernacle. And God says, I want you to build something that looks like this. Build one of these, basically. And what that means is that the temple, the tabernacle that existed on earth was a model, a scale model of something that existed already in heaven. Oh. It's modeled after something else. So when Hebrews says that Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies once for all, there's a certain sense that while he's on the cross, he is offering that sacrifice. But then as, as Reardon points out, really, if he's going to fulfill everything that the high priest is supposed to do, he performs that atonement on the cross, and then he ascends into heaven where he can then go into the heavenly tabernacle into the presence of God the Father and offer himself once for all, thus taking his throne and thus completing the whole act of redemption for all of humanity and all of human history. It's only through the ascension that he completes that, though. And then he sits. And, you know, the reason when we're in mass, I've, I've talked to classes about this. You know how when you're in mass and after communion, we're all still kneeling until you, until the priest sits down. And then commonly, just a lot of people just sit. And I, when I first kind of came back to the church, I was kind of frustrated about that. And I was like, well, we should stay kneeling until, you know, he says, let us pray. And we stand up to do the concluding prayer. But the reason we all sit is because traditionally when a priest who was offering sacrifice sat, that implied that the sacrifice is complete. It's done. So the moment liturgically that you sit down... It's done. 
it's been completed. So we don't, I used to think though, okay, everybody sits down then in their pews out of like a sign of respect for you or a sign of respect for your priest. Mm. It's not out of a sign of respect. It's saying, oh, it's complete now because the priest is seated. Are you saying that they don't respect me? They all respect you. Everybody loves you, Brother Peter. <laughs> no, but no. We, but it, we sit it, because it's, it's, it's victory. It's it's like you, you okay, sit when all the work done. is done. Exactly. So when Jesus is now going up, ascending into heaven and seated, you're like, now it's complete. Not just when he rose again, not just when he was on the cross, but now that he's seated, it's actually finally complete, even and, if we can't see it yet. And that's what makes it so wonderful. Yeah. Because what is also seated at the right hand of the Father now? <laughs> Jesus. Our humanity. Oh, our humanity. Yes. The, it, the, that's the moment where humanity is introduced into the Godhead. I we're, guess you're right. We're huh? introduced into the Trinitarian life. Because he takes us, ooh, 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 ooh. He takes his humanity up to heaven. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> That's good. I've never thought about that. That's cool. Oh. A blare oh. of trumpets for the Lord. And that's what's happening. There's trumpets blaring as this yes. is happening. Dude, and I, that, your hand was like so high in the air. I, I accept your hand raising. I got excited about something. Tell me your excitement. The second reading. Oh, doggy. So um, the letter to the Ephesians, this comes from the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. This is the part which is considered uh, the Berakah blessing, the prayer sort of at the beginning. It's the tail end of, of, of Paul's prayer. But, uh, the letter to the Ephesians is great. It's one of my favorite letters, partially because, you know, in most of Paul's epistles, He's putting out fires or he's trying to, to fight fights or to solve fights or he's dealing with, with people who are mad at him. Ephesians is, is one of the only letters where he's actually not answering someone. He's not mm. fighting someone. He's not defending himself. He's not trying to put out a fire. He's simply speaking what he wants speaking. to say. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think, one of the greatest insights into his theology as he wants to put it. Not on the defensive, not explaining something, but just here's what I want to tell you, which I love because it gives you an insight into Paul's heart, right? Yes. And his understanding. Yeah. And so here in this kind of beginning part, he says, brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge of him. May you, the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. May the eyes of your hearts be Open enlightened. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Okay. That's good. I want to go to <laughs> Ephesus. Oh, yeah. No, okay. you, you wouldn't have. It was a mess there. Okay. Um, but You had something to say about the first reading, though. You said I have one word to say about the first reading, but I forget what that one word was. Remember before the podcast, you're like, I got one word about the first reading. I got reading. one word, inheritance. Oh, inheritance. Yes. Do you want me to come back to that? Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. And this just, I thought of this and I was thinking about it. Okay. Um, that you may, oh, where did I, I lost it. Oh no. Having the eyes of your hearts okay. enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So last week we talked about love and how love, you know, in, in the theological sense, isn't quite what we all, you know, it's, it's not the romanticized kind of sappy, gooey, mushy. My, you know our friend Renato Sander? Yeah. He always says, he's like, it gives me diabetes, man. It's like too sweet and sticky. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it always makes me chuckle. But the heart, I want to talk about the word the heart for a minute because – the Hebrew understanding, the Old Testament understanding of the heart is also different. So we, we over-romanticize the heart. Like if you say somebody doesn't have emotions, you're like, oh, he's heartless, right? So we make the heart into kind of this thing that's the seat of our emotions, but that's not theologically what it is. It's not in the Old Testament what it is. And I wanted to um, 
I want to read this passage from the Catechism real quick. We don't bring the Catechism into the show all that often, but I think we should. This is from the fourth part of the Catechism, which is the section on prayer, which the fourth pillar of the Catechism is one of the the most profoundly beautiful pieces of spiritual writing that I think exists. Wow. Do you know the story about the fourth pillar of the Catechism? It was like added last minute and they had somebody else do it. Yeah, dude. So the whole catechism is, I don't want to say it was put together by committee in a negative sense, but there were lots of theologians and Cardinal Ratzinger. Well, yeah, because it's the most massive theological work ever. So there's a lot of hands and a lot of theology going into this. But the fourth part is different. It was written by one man um, on a typewriter in a basement in Lebanon, in Beirut, Lebanon, with bombs going on off around him in the in the what the mid eighties during the war of independence or during the the war that happened then, and he wrote it like in one or two sittings. And I think that and I can't remember his name, but you'd know him because he he's written other stuff as well. Erasmo? But, no, but I think he's he seriously produced one of the most just brilliant, profound pieces of spiritual writing. Just sometime read through the fourth pillar of the catechism, you guys. It's not very long. And it's just good. It's not like this is heavy theology. It's like deep prayer stuff. It's cool. But one of the things he says, he talks about the heart. And he says this, the heart, at least in the biblical sense, in the in the theological sense, the heart, we think of it as the seat of our emotions and like, oh, if you don't have, a, you know, be have a bigger heart and love people and be nice, da, 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 da. But here's what he says. This is paragraph 2563. The heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. According to the Semitic or biblical expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision. Uh, Deeper than our psychic drives, it is the place of truth, the place where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter because as an image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of covenant. Hmm. That's what the heart. So when Paul talks about um, the Lord giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge and having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, he's saying, make a decision that you're Mm. going to do something about this. It's like when we, the idea, and I think the catechism is getting at, when we go into our hearts, this place where... We meet with God. The the idea for the Hebrews was that this is the meeting place. This is our private, personal tabernacle, right? As Jesus in the first reading in the the psalm is going into Mm. the tabernacle in the heavenly holy of holies to meet with God, to offer himself, we actually each have built-in little tabernacles, little holy of holies, where the Holy Spirit actually dwells if we're baptized and we're in the state of grace, where we can recede into that and we can meet with God face-to-face in this place of decision, this place of offering in this holy of holy, this tabernacle, where we can make the same sorts of decisions that Jesus made out of love and say, yes, I choose to give myself to this and I choose to move forward. That's what the apostles are really being asked in this first reading. You don't get it yet, but I'm asking you to say yes to this vocation, to say yes to this mission, even before you fully understand what it is. I want you to wait. I want you to recede into your hearts and I want you to wait for me. And when the Holy Spirit comes, where does he go? He goes into their hearts, into that place of decision, into that place of covenant, and that's where he empowers us. Again, it wasn't enough for the apostles just to see Jesus. That's profound. 
but he needs to dwell in their hearts, in their Holy of Holies, which he can only really do if he goes into the Holy of Holies in heaven, if he ascends oh, to the Father. Oh, there we are. Then he can then come into our little Holy of Holies inside of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out within us. He's speaking to us. I mean, it goes right back even to what he's saying in the first readings. Yeah. It says um, and uh, that he will teach us, uh, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Yeah. And he teaches through the Holy Spirit. Um, and after he had given the commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Like, right. this is, the that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Which leads us into... I, a, I think it does, really yeah, well. Because cause once we're in contact, we know what we're supposed to do. Right. Like, every once right. in a while, you'll have somebody come into the confessional and they'll say, you know, the Lord told me to really do this one thing. And I didn't do it. And sometimes it's really subtle. It's actually something that's like a gentle movement. But it's that decision against the Holy Spirit that actually causes a lot of funkiness in people's mm. lives. Wow. It can Because our spirits are super sensitive. Yeah, they're, totally. they're, they're just like right on the edge. Yeah. And so what we're looking for is is to actually be able to be responsive to the Holy Spirit. And so yes. sometimes it's those little moments and promptings of the Spirit that we need to actually just return to and say yes. Absolutely. But like now, the, the, what's happening is the apostles are getting called. Okay, this is the time. Remember, remember the mission statement: go out to all the world. Let's do this. Well, sort of. Mark is taking us back. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm looking at the progression of the readings in in relationship yes, yeah, to yeah, us, yeah, yeah, not yes, necessarily yes. Know, them, okay. them historically. Well, actually, historically, then I guess this is probably happening parallel to what we're being told in Acts. Right? It's about the same time. This yeah. is during the time that he's with them. So. Chronologically, we're, we're in Acts, but then you're pointing us forward to what this means. Yes. So give me your historical idea, though. Okay. Well, yeah. This, so it says, Jesus said to his disciples, this is Mark's version of what we call the Great Commission, the going out. He said, go into the whole world, proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. They, In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not harm them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And then it says, after Jesus spoke, he was taken up into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. So the, the ascension. Now, here's the thing. And it says, then they saw, they confirmed the word through accompanying signs. They did these things. So, I didn't know. Did I, did I do that? I get, yeah, yeah, Stop. Yeah, yeah. Am I mumbling? I'm no, tired. No, 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 Stop no, no, no. it. I'm speaking a new language, okay? Oh, oh you're speaking tongues. I Sorry, you were I just. making fun of me. No, no, I was just speaking a oh. new language. It wasn't tongues that time. That, it would gracious. be heavenly. You're <laughs> okay. like. You're like <laughs> okay, so here's the scene. Okay. I was teaching at the Denver Catholic Biblical School. It's one of my first years of teaching. I was okay. teaching this class in Colorado Springs. Bill and Ted's. No, um, Wayne's World. Yep. Thank you. Anyway. I was teaching this. We just finished. We're finishing the semester, I think. And I was teaching this passage and somebody raised their hand. This lady raised their hand in the back and they're like, wait a second. Give me a good like, lady's voice, dude. Come on. No, it wasn't like an old lady. Okay. Wait a second. Okay. There you <laughs> go. There you go. But she was like, hold on a second. She was like, this is great and this is beautiful, but, but wait a minute. Jesus just said that people are going to believe and be baptized and the way that you can know if they're saved is that they're going to speak in these languages and tongues and pick up sermons, serpents, and they're going to lay their hands on the sick, and they're going to heal people and do these crazy miracles. She was like, Jesus just said, that's how you know. I believe Jesus. I believe in him. I've never seen anything like this. She's like, I go to a faithful parish. Like, we're, we're pretty good. We do our thing. I think people are saved, I presume. 
I've never seen anything like this. So what's the deal? Was Jesus wrong? Is this just like old timey Bible things that happened then and just stopped because we're too modern now? She's like, how do I reconcile this? Because I've never seen anything like this. And Jesus says, that's how you know. And I just stood there for a while. I was like, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, how do you answer that? Because on some level, you're like, well, God still is at work and he does different things. And, and these things do have, there are miracles that happen. People are healed and they have their hand, hands laid on them and, and things do happen. But here, here's, here's, here's what I'll say. And this comes back to actually what you said a minute ago. Well, what you okay. said a few minutes ago. Okay. I think it's all about the new evangelization. Oh. Or what we call it. So the new yes. evangelization, this is this buzzword we throw around, right? The seminary is housed in this giant building called the John Paul II Center for the New Evangelization, right? The New yep. Evangelization. We say it all the time, and I don't think many people know. I used to give a talk about this. What is new about the New Evangelization? And I was in a grad school class once, and I think it was Ted Shree, and he was like pressing us. He's like, okay, so what's new about this New Evangelization? We all use this word. Methods, the, art, and zeal. Methods, art, and zeal. But what does that mean? We're like, well, you know, the world is is so different now, and then there's new sins, and it's so corrupt, and the culture of death, and da da da. He's like, well, yeah, that's true, but sin is sin. I mean, we have new ways of sinning, but you can't be like, we need a new evangelization because there's a lot of sin. This is the Roman Empire. This is given into. I mean, that it's not sin that's new. Sin is old. We just have new ways of doing it. Right. So what's new? Because the evangelization, the call to evangelize, is not new. Right. That's from day one. Right. And what the reality is, if you kind of dig through, John Paul II is the one who popularized this term, but it was coined, I think, by Paul VI. And, and basically what they said was, okay, think about this. We have this, this phenomenon that's never, I think you know this. Something this, like phenomenon. Okay. This phenomenon that's never happened before in the history of the church where we have probably millions of people who have been baptized and even confirmed. Baptism we believe literally changes you. You have a new identity. You are, you are intrinsically changed in your very being. Yes. If you're confirmed, you're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit unto strength. You have been empowered to do something. These are sacramental realities. Baptism is, is sort of like becoming, it's like going into a marriage um, covenant with God. It's what gets you into the family. It's what unites him to you, you to him. So imagine if imagine if you were married to somebody, but you'd actually never met that person and you had no idea that you got married. That, Whoa. in a certain sense, is the equivalent of what has happened to perhaps millions of baptized Christians who have been baptized legitimately in the proper form, done right, and they have no idea that they're actually in a marriage relationship with a God who wants to empower them. They have no clue. And what the Pope said is part of the new evangelization is, look, that has never happened. So there is evangelization where we go out to the nations and we proclaim this. But then there's this whole other problem that there's millions yes. among us who actually are already in the family and they have no idea that that's taken place. Yes. All they need is for this grace and this power to be tapped into. Yes. What does this have to do with this gospel reading? What it has to do with it is I wonder, and I'm not talking about picking up snakes necessarily and stuff like that, but can you imagine what the world would be like if half of the people who were baptized in this world actually realized what they had? Ugh. Can you, I mean, the culture of death, abortion, all of these things we struggle with, it would die overnight. I am 100% convinced if people realized who they were and 
who we are in Jesus Christ, the new identities that we have, the death to our old selves, the fact that we don't have to be slaves to sin, the freedom that we've actually been given. If half of the world realized <sighs> what we actually have lying dormant within us, yes. we would see miracles every day. The world would be a completely different place if Catholics alone understood actually what we've been given. And that eventually to this lady was my answer to that question is that we don't see this. There are miracles and things do happen. There are wonders that God is working, but just imagine what the world would be like if we actually did realize what we have. Well, yeah, this is the thing too, is that like, like, okay, let's just look, uh, casting out demons. Now this is something that is actually important. Yeah. Like that's important now. Um, speak in new tongues. Okay. That's important. Like, but like it's not that miraculous to learn a new language nowadays, right? I mean, angelic tongues and yeah, interpretation yeah, yeah. Of tongues—that's really cool. But like picking up serpents, like okay, you know, <laughs> like like the, there there's some stuff here where it's yes, like, you know, if if I were to see somebody speak in a new tongue, let me pick put... up a serpent, like the, like those are cool. Yeah, but this is the reality: is that is that somebody who courageously proclaims Jesus Christ is actually profound. Like, like the, these, there, there are, there's sign value that does change with time. Yes, that's 100% true, but consider this. That's true. I, I fully grant that, but consider this. What we said a yeah. minute ago about Acts of the Apostles. Okay. And we talked about this last week with, with Paul or Peter. Um, the Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus healed people who were sick. In Acts of the Apostles, you hear about the apostles going around and people would hear, oh, wow, there's one of the followers of that guy who healed people who were sick and raised people from the dead. I have someone who's sick. I should call them. Well, now, yeah, and you see, and they uh, can help. Yeah. I have spiritual problems. I'm in despair. Here's a follower of Jesus. Surely they can do something. Yes. That's not how the world looks at us. I think no. that's the difference. Because, yeah, there, there are things that, that, you know, in time don't necessarily... Um, translate necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, then there's just the simple fact that, again, in Acts of the Apostles, people said, that's a follower of Jesus. I need help. I need them because yep. I know Jesus has empowered them. That's what we're lacking. And that's, I think, what the world does not see when they look at us, when they say, oh, here comes a follower of Jesus. I need spiritual help. Or, But, you know, in a certain sense, I mean, I know you have all sorts of experiences, but you probably also know that there's just certain people in the world and maybe it's a state where they are, but sometimes that collar of yours, you're like, oh my gosh, are you a priest? Like, I need to talk to someone. I need a priest. That like, does happen. So it is it there. I don't, I don't mean to say like, oh, it's completely yeah, yeah. gone, but yeah. I was with you once. Remember when that guy approached you on the street and he's like, yeah. are you a priest? Can I just give you a hug? I need I need this this connection with something. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it does happen. I'm not saying that it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. to, for the world to look at Christianity or Catholic, Catholics like that, there was a time that the world looked at them that way. And there is going to be a time again. Right. Like, we, we've, we, the reasons for the calling for the new evangelization, for us to go out to the ends of the earth, is including the ends of the of the church, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to like actually go and reach out to the fringe. Like yeah. it is that time again, and it's a beautiful evangelization. And actually, frankly, I'm super thankful for the new evangelization because there's a lot of things that you can call upon. Absolutely. Sometimes the old evangelization is really hard because there's so many qualities and content to the uh, to how it, how it goes. But so, but thankfully, we can rely upon the Lord who is ascended to the Father, who sits at the right hand and intercedes for us. Yeah. 
Man, thanks for joining us today, everybody. You guys are great. We love you. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. And so don't fake the funk. Never. See you then. Okay, bye. Bye. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT or lankyguys.org. Send us an email, lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Find us on Facebook. We'll see you next week.